Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're in Genesis 45, taking, picking up from where we left off. And where we left off is an odd spot because it's not really a, a good spot for a chapter break. It's right in the middle of the story. Um, and we'll leave off tonight in kind of a similar situation because, well, and I really think next time, we'll see how far we get tonight, but I honestly think next time might be our last time in Genesis because we get to genealogies and things move pretty fast from there. Um, but chapter 45 is the kind of the the conclusion of Genesis in the sense like if we were talking about a movie, this would be the climax of the movie is this reunion that's going to happen between Joseph and his dad. And we've been like many chapters away from into this story of, of the family getting split apart and then things coming back together. So to get us caught back up, even though we all know the story, um, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was then resurrected from that pit. Uh, his brothers say that he's dead, but he's not dead. And famine drives the whole world to Joseph for salvation and the bread of life. Uh, or, I'm sorry, grain. Um, so we have this kind of narrative, which is clearly a metaphor for what God's plan is for the planet Earth. And that's pretty cool, especially when you get into these chapters that I think when we went through it as a family the first time, we buzzed through these chapters. But when you look at this through a lens of like, any kind of illustration of Jesus, then it gets to be kind of interesting how that plays out. And, and this is really important pieces because it's our period of time and it speaks to us. Um, so Judah had, remember last chapter, Judah stepped up, kind of this mo big moment for him in the movie um, when Judah kind of says, I'll put my life down for the sake of Benjamin and I'll bring back um, anything I can. And if I can't do it, you can take my life. So he offers himself as a sacrifice instead of offering his brother Joseph for a sacrifice like the first time around. Um, the brothers then choose if they'll hang together and they'll defend each other. And the brothers do. They all hang together. And for the sake of Benjamin, they go back and offer themselves as slaves. So the whole family kind of bonds together and comes together. They're not scattered anymore. They've, they've gathered and they're 11 strong men ready to do the work um, for their father. And... Likewise, if you take Judas out of the picture, after Jesus died and was raised again, there were 11 men that were ready to take that on. And I know we talk about the 12 disciples because they were drawing straws very quickly, um, but essentially the number's the same between the amount of brothers that were doing this work and the amount of disciples that Jesus had. Then Joseph, we'll start in verse 1, could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. So they can hear this guy bawling like a baby. Why? Because he's just watched his brothers come through to confess their sin, to sacrifice their lives. Um, it is one of those moments where it's hard to do that. So Joseph was led by God to do everything that he had done, 
Uh, and it probably hurt him to test his brothers like this. You'd think that he would immediately reveal himself as a brother. But Joseph, I think, is doing this because there's something to be done here. Now he sees that his brothers are changed. Um, he was probably ready to punish them, but he's given them a chance, and they actually came through, which is kind of neat. Or Joseph was testing himself uh, to see how long he could hold out, and at this point he's just overwhelmed. He just he's just um, he has a family again, and what a neat feeling that is when you've been betrayed by your own family uh, to be able to see that that does come around, that there is hope. That years later that family does change their disposition towards him, um, and that broken heart gets healed, which is pretty cool. Um, there is a Jewish teaching around this, him wanting to be alone, make everyone go away from me. And it's a crazy teaching, so I thought I'd add it in here. The Jewish rabbis say that Joseph needed to be alone so that he could show his brothers his circumcision. And that was how he proved who he was. His real identity was in his circumcised self. So the reason they were all pushed out of the room, all the Egyptians, was so Joseph could say to his brothers, I am Joseph. And with that would come the revealing of himself. And I just thought that was the craziest kind of thing ever. But who knows, maybe the Jewish, you know, maybe the traditions have something to do with something. I think he just wanted to be alone with his family. Like this was kind of a cool moment. So verse three, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Or for the Jews, I am Joseph. Um, Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed by his presence. And dismayed here is... I think in the English, it doesn't quite convey it. Um, it's Bahal, which in the Hebrew, it means to be amazed to the point of weakness. And if you've ever been at that thing where you get super excited, and when I was a little kid, I'm hyper now, but when I was a little kid, I'd get so excited sometimes that I'd get kind of like faint headed. And that's the word for this, that they were amazed to weakness or even terrified um, that this was kind of a moment. And they draw back, or, or at least something has happened because Joseph has to act, ask them to come near. Um, and now he's speaking in Hebrew because there's no translator in the room. So all of a sudden there's this big revealing moment where he's speaking perfect Hebrew. And I think that's probably as revealing as anything the Jewish people, Jewish traditions would say. Um, and Joseph says to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near and then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into Egypt. Um, I think it's interesting that, um, again, this comparison to Jesus, um, that after Jesus has prepared a place for his people and he reveals himself to Israel, uh, the Jewish people are going to have a moment where they are mourning or they're grieving because they realize what they've done. They've lost 2,000 years of following their own Messiah. And I think that would be kind of a moment there. And it's been a prophesized moment that they will come. In Zechariah 12:10. it says, I will pour on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. So this is after the crucifixion. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns only for his son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. There's going to be a moment where the Jewish people who are still alive and well, which is a miracle in itself, uh, there really are no other people groups other than the Egyptians that are still around today from this era of history. Um, and maybe the Chinese, but the Bible doesn't mention the Chinese, but they say they go back this far too. Um, but there's going to be this time when they realize they made a huge mistake and they've been making the same mistake every generation. Um, but now, verse five, 
Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God has sent me before you to preserve life. And I think that's the same reaction Jesus will have with the Jewish people. Don't be grieved or angry um, with yourselves because you sold me out. Um, because I had to, that had to happen for me to go prepare a place for you. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. That verse six is the dating year from last week when I said that we were at this year and that had that many years. That's one of those dating verses because we know where in the famine we are with that one. Verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to the Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So Joseph, one thought on Joseph here is he could be really bitter towards his brothers, um, or he could be kind of like, no, I forgive you and it's all gone and there's nothing wrong. But he doesn't really forget. I mean, he names it. He's kind of point blank about it. And he says, because you sold me here. So he's not denying or ignoring what happened. He's just acknowledging it. And I think that's kind of interesting. But he does forgive. And the way he forgives is he sees God's glory in the whole process. And that's an easy way when somebody wrongs us to say, you know, I can now I can see what God was doing. And, and God's going to save you because I'm here. And that wouldn't have happened if you weren't mean to me. 20 years ago, or whenever that, 22 years ago. So God's used Joseph for this kind of epic kind of mass migration down to Egypt that's got to happen. So he's been working 13 years in a prison, which made me ask the question, how long can I be patient, faithfully doing the work that God's given me, the work that he's put in front of us? And at the same time, Steph and I are studying Galatians right now. And there was this whole passage when I was working through this this week where they just talk about this idea that I think sometimes in the faith, we want those big, momentous, epic moments in our life. It's taken Joseph 20 years to get to this epic moment. It took Moses 40 years herding sheep to get to the epic moment. But that faithful, just living life gracefully and serving um, is such a key point. And it's a key point even in modern leadership studies. One of the best ways to lead is to perceive yourself as a servant. You're there to give yourself to the people you're serving. And you give of your time, you give of your energy, uh, you care for the people you're serving, and generally they don't even care about it. All you get back are like complaints because somebody's desk isn't the right size or something like that. So, But you still kind of just do it with this attitude of, I just want to care for the people around me. Preserve, the word in verse 7, came for you to preserve a word, was interesting. Um, that word for us, preserve, means to like keep something. Uh, I, the translation for this was a bit broader. It was to make a place, to set something in order. It was like to nest. So God sent me here to nest for you, like to kind of put in order everything and organize everything, to set things in their place. It was not me who sent me. It was not you who sent me here, but God. I think that's interesting because Joseph's not dumb. He recognizes his brothers physically sent them, but he also recognizes God's hand was totally there too. So for Joseph, God's in control of everything, uh, which is, if you look at modern theology, there's some debate around that idea of is God in control or is God not in control? Open theism, closed theism, neo-Calvinism and all that. And this is one of the verses that the Calvinists like. There are other verses that the open theists like. 
Um, but in this point, uh, Joseph's idea or his perception is God controlled even those things that happened in the life. Verse 9, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. First, I like that he says hurry up because it's been a year since he sent them away the first time. So they went and ate all the food before they came back a second time and leaving Simeon to rot in a jail cell. So hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have, there I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Um, Goshen is a region in Egypt that's kind of to the east of the Nile. It usually gets flooded every so often, so it's beautiful farmland. It's a lot like the Red River Valley here in Minnesota. So really good, probably the best grazing land in Egypt is what the Pharaoh has allocated to Joseph. Uh, so he sends his 11 brothers to go get Israel and bring them back home. Uh, just like Jesus sent the 11 disciples and all 11 of those disciples primarily ministered to the Jewish world. Paul was not one of those 11 and he was kind of known for going out to the Gentiles. So separation in Egypt is going to keep Israel from blending into the Canaanites. Um, the Egyptians don't want to touch people who care for sheep and herdsmen. And we'll see a verse about that here in a bit where Joseph says that's the story. So they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're called to be separated and set apart, even though they're right in the middle of this area. And the word Goshen means to draw near, to come close, to be family. Verse 12, and behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. So they do it. And so he asked them twice to hurry at the beginning and the end of this request. <laughs> hurry up. Just take care of this quickly. Um, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. That means he really, he, he gave him a full hug. This was not like a pat-pat hug. Uh, this was a massive embrace kind of hug. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers. So it doesn't sound like he gave full hugs to all of his brothers. He just gave him a polite kiss. So even though he's forgiven them, it's not the same kind of emotional love that he has for the brothers. So he kissed all his brothers, wept over them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. This is the first time he's talked with his brothers. He's told them about his dreams. They've told him to go in the pit and shut up. And they've asked for things, but this is the first time they've just gotten to talk. So as we see all this reconciliation happening, the core, the result of reconciliation is to be able to just talk with people and have a conversation. So they hugged. There's affection for Benjamin, forgiveness for the brothers, and just this idea of just talking. No guile, no agendas, no hostility. They just talk and assume the other person means them well. Um, the brothers now have a chance to know that they were being played by Joseph all along. I don't know how they would react to that. I'm sure there's 11 of them. There would have been different reactions because they tend to argue a lot. So some of them probably thought, ha ha, that was great. Some of them thought, wow, it's good to see Joseph. And some of them maybe were harboring some kind of like, what's Joseph going to do to us now? And later we're going to see that they're scared of what Joseph will do after the dad dies, after Jacob dies. And jo Joseph has to kind of calm them down again. Like, I'm not going to kill you um, now the dad's dead. Um, 
So some of them still have some of those worries, rightfully so. So I see this almost as the, like, close to the end of the movie. We got a massive epilogue coming, which is when Jacob comes back to see Joseph. But you can almost see the camera panning back, the brothers eating together, sharing meals, passing the waffles, and that sort of thing. And then music starts playing, and the credits start to roll. Um, so let me do a little bit of just this thought of the news the brothers get to go back and tell Jacob. Because Jacob's about to hear the best news of his life. And that is, Joseph is alive. He's been mourning ever since. He's been darkened ever since. He's gone back to the name Jacob ever since. So he's fallen away from his love and his hope in God. But he's about to hear that Joseph's alive, which is going to mean a few very important things to Jacob. One, if Joseph is alive, then life isn't random. God had to have had a hand in it because they sold him as a slave. So it means God's looking over us. If, Jesus, if Jacob, Joseph is actually alive, then there is a God and he's looking over us as a family. If Joseph's alive, that means to Jacob and his family that the whole family is going to survive the famine. So even though the world has death in store, it means my family is going to survive. If Joseph's alive, that means that the confessions of the brothers actually mattered. And Joseph, even though they didn't know it, was the perfect person to confess to. Because they confessed to Joseph before they knew who Joseph was. Last, if Joseph's alive, the mistakes that all the brothers made aren't going to get held against them. So if Joseph's alive and he's inviting them back, the good news is that they're welcome to come into the family again. And there's this uh, way in which they're going to get pardoned, all the big sins and even all the little ones. So just in case you missed it, there's some connections there to Jehovah and Jesus. Because jo Joseph's name means... Jehovah will finish. So if you're reading this and you speak ancient Hebrew, every time you're seeing the word Joseph, you're reading Jehovah will finish, Jehovah will finish. So if Jehovah's alive, that means there is a God, right? That means there's a life after death. If Jesus or Jehovah's alive, it means we'll survive this world that has spiritual famine in it, that there's something beyond this earth. Also in our Galatians stuff this week, right? This world has nothing for me. There's really nothing here. Even though you just got a nice new job and you feel like, oh, my life's right ahead of me. Yeah, what's ahead of you is 40 years of going into work every day, doing kind of the same thing. And hopefully you bless and are, can minister to people that you work with and vice versa. And you can find joy and hopefully build a family whenever. Um, but those are all great things to look forward to. But ultimately... I've seen people with kids that are miserable. And I've seen people with grandkids that are miserable. Those aren't the things that make us joyful. Jesus is. So, oh, they actually are moving in. We could be helping them right now. No, Bible study. I have a sore back. Otherwise, you know, I'd go help lift boxes. That feels really hypocritical. <laughs> we could have them moved in in like two minutes. No. I already asked them. They didn't want our help. Um, they have a teenager and they wanted him tired was what they said <laughs> their 18 year old is named sean i really like him already so um if jesus is alive it means that when we confess to jesus even though we don't see him that it's the right and perfect person to confess to because he's the one that's going to be our judge and that's uh you see the 
I hope you see the parallels, but it's kind of cool. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus... with If you shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you're saved. That's it. Um, and that idea of if these brothers find that they confess to Joseph and they're saved. Okay. So that's a lot of good news. How do we react to this? And I'll come back to that passage that I really liked. His brothers talked with him. How do you react to all this wonderful news, this amazing news? You're saved. Your family's saved. Your herds and flocks are saved. You're not going to get judged for all the sins you've done in your life. What do they do? They talk with them. And I look at how many Christians go through, they believe that the Lord is God, they're saved, but they don't bother to talk to Jesus. They don't bother to pray. And what happens is then they don't do the one thing that has now opened a wonderful door to us. And it's amazing to me, even people at our church, where you're like, have, what, you know, how is your relationship with the Lord? And they're like, I don't really pray. You're like, why not? Um, anyway, it's just the thought for people that, or they'll say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know, you just kind of close your eyes, find a quiet spot and talk to the Lord and say, here's my day, here's what happened. Help with this, catch up a bit, you know. Verse 16, I'm sorry, I'm going off track. <laughs> now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Obviously, Joseph saved this country, right? So the the Joseph, or the Pharaoh is excited about this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Likewise, Jesus and the Father will welcome people into the, into the afterlife, and that's the theology we believe in. So Pharaoh now had a chance to repay Joseph for his blessings. Um, verse 18, bring your father and your households to come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land, which is an interesting kind of King James phrase, but it's actually as it's translated, eat the fat of the land. So it's an interesting phrase because land doesn't get fat. The cows on the land get fat. So you could say, well, see right there, the Bible is inaccurate because there is not actually fat on land. Um, but I think it's just a it's just a phrase. Now you are commanded to do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The word carts there is a non-warfare chariot. So this is like strolling up to dad's house in a limousine and having a driver open the door for you. And you step out and you're like, hey, dad, I've arrived. Right? And that's really what they're doing here. When they go back to Canaan and they've got these carts, those are super expensive luxury vehicles uh, that make it easier for travel. So I can see the brothers going back and, you know, another way to look at it is they come pulling up in a tour bus saying, we're going to go on a trip. And so they have all the tools and everything needed to bring them back. So it's a good homecoming, um, which made me think Joseph, just throughout the story of Joseph, he always lifts other people up. And even here at the end, by offering carts, he's literally lifting up the women, the children. Jacob, remember, he has a bad hip from his wrestling match. Um, so he's lifting people up, and he still does it, and he still offers it, and the Pharaoh's on board with it and even suggests it. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them carts 
according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. And he gave to all of them, to each man, a change of garments. Remember, garments are super valuable. I like to think that Joseph Joseph gave them all long-armed coats. And I think that would have been a nice touch here. And he would have given them coats that were even better than the one they got upset about. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. So again, he's favoring Benjamin. And he said to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So they're going back with a boatload of stuff and these goods are kind of luxury items, not necessarily coming back with tons and tons of grain, but um, enough grain to feed the herds to make the trip to Egypt. So all of that stuff is going to help the brothers because we know that Jacob doesn't believe them. There's a trust issue between the brothers and Jacob. So all of this stuff can only be explained by the story they're about to tell their dad. Um, So it's a validation kind of thing. So when we come to Jesus, I think it's also kind of interesting that we often get far more abundance than anything the world can offer on its own terms. And the world offers different kinds of fruits than what the kingdom offers, really different. In fact, in Galatians 5.19, you can tell we are in Galatians. The works of the flesh are evident. They are. Here's what you get. If This is kind of all the different pursuits of the world, and here's the end result. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, lewdness idolatry, which is, I think, the big one. They should, Paul should have probably let off with that one. Sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts, of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So like an episode of uh, The Bachelor. is That's what the world has to offer us, is a bunch of turmoil and strife and nastiness. But then right just a couple verses later, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of the coolest parts about telling people about China is they all want to know about the Chinese Christians. And I, Steph even said this, and she's like, they're so bold. And it's like, you know, it's hard to describe them as bold people. They're kind of just like us, right? And you think these champions of the faith, these heroes, the Billy Graham types that have gone before us, I have a feeling if we actually met these people, they would have been joyful, peaceful, long-suffering, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and they would have had some self-control about them. I just don't think that God calls on the big and powerful people of the world. He calls on the really, really simple people, and he puts up with the big and powerful people sometimes because some of us get saved. And we have to learn gentleness, right, and self-control. I used my favorite hero when I was a kid was Animal from the Muppets. And in one of the movies, he has this line where he's coming out of therapy training to cool is, you know, because he gets so excited to play the drums. And again, I was a hyper kid. And I always like the line where they, they say, keep it down. And Animal goes, in control. <laughs> I know that's so off pace, but some of us have to learn the fruits of the spirit. But walking with Christ actually helps us get those things. And to whatever degree I'm in control, it's largely the Lord in my life. It's not the kid I was or the young man that I was. So, So he sent his brothers away, verse 24, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you don't become troubled along the way. (laughs) So Joseph knows darn well that his brothers are going to start arguing again. 
As soon as we're away from Jesus, we tend to fall right back into those habits and those things. When we're not talking with Jesus, we tend to fall away too. So to be troubled actually means to quake or tremble with rage. So really getting mad at each other. And he's worried about that with his brothers. And I think when we look at the genealogy, we'll see why. Some of these brothers are still really twisted people. Um, and Joseph, I, I think, is recognizing that as he talks with them. They got some work to do. Um, so he doesn't want them to fight or get worked up or start to argue. They're going to have a lot of wealth. And we know that some of them fall to the temptation of wealth. And they're going to argue about who gets what and all that sort of thing. So he has to tell them, don't get, don't be all rageful and worked up as you go home. Um, we see the same kind of thing concerning Jesus when he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So be content with what God's given us and that when we have to leave or go away, we're not constantly worried about what we don't have. And then verse 25, then he went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And he told them saying, and here's the news. This is the moment. Joseph is alive and he's the governor over all of the land of Egypt. Which would be the more surprising information for Jacob? That his son's alive or that he's the boss of Egypt? Uh, and both of these would be preposterous things. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not, did not believe them. So it's, it's easy to pick on Jacob because he doesn't believe his sons. But remember the history he has with these kids? They've lied to him before. And now they're coming home with a bunch of stuff and he's thinking, did they just steal? Did they just wipe out another city and take the loot? Um, so he doesn't believe them right off the bat. So it's easy to make the comparison of Israel to Israel for Jesus because Jesus' Israel was the Pharisees, right? Israel was actually literally there and they didn't believe Jesus when, he, when they heard the news that he was alive. So initially it's almost the same with these disciples. Here's 11 brothers coming back saying Joseph's alive and Israel doesn't believe them. Uh, so Mark 16, 11 says, and when they heard, they being the 11 disciples, right? When they heard that he was alive and had been seen, do you remember the first reaction was? They did not believe. I'll read that again. And when they heard the disciples that he was alive and had not and had been seen by her, Mary Magdalene, they did not believe. So even the disciples didn't believe right away that Jesus was alive. Mark 16, 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. So Jesus shows up and he has to yell at them for not believing. So there was literally no one on earth after the resurrection other than the two women that believed Jesus was alive. So he had to actually come back to his own disciples to do that. So in that sense, Jesus had to show everybody. And, and I think the next verse is important because this is how we become saved. Verse 27, but when they told him the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. What a beautiful image. The spirit revived. We are dead until we are born again and our life comes back and suddenly the joy comes with it. He did not believe them. Comparatively, the only way to believe that we people will believe Jesus is actually alive 
is if they hear the words that he said and they see the work in our lives, they see what he's done. That's it. So we can share our story with people and we can share the fruits of the spirit with people. Um, And thus the primary way that Satan gets in the way of that is he makes it so people never hear the words of Jesus. And I think that's happening in America in really fast. We don't want the Bible in schools. We don't want the words of the Bible anywhere on public buildings. We don't want them in public settings. We don't want anything that the Bible says or Jesus said anywhere in front of actual people. And the more you do that, even in the church, the less and less of the Bible we look at in the church, the less and less power we have to actually compel people that Jesus is alive. Israel, like the nation of Israel, falls out of belief for many years before they accept that there's a Messiah that's alive and well. So God makes it really easy to see the parallels when he really wants them to see us. So in this case, the two parallels are Israel stands for Israel, and Jehovah will finish stands for Jehovah. And I thought that was, usually they're a little tougher to see. So essentially we have to tell people our stories. That's how we share our belief with people. Not to be scared to tell about the parts of our stories where we see God at work in our life. And again, God's work isn't always this big, bold, amazing lightning strike. Sometimes God work, God's work in our life is peace. And when you see people in, drawn to folks that have peace and joy in their life, it's kind of an odd thing because it's not a flashy thing that we show people. We just show people that we're at peace. We're not contentious. We're not envious. Um, we're not those kinds of people. We don't have that kind of fruit in our life. So how do we help others come from unbelief to belief? We share Jesus' words. We show what Jesus has done. One thought I had, and and again, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this. How do we know, or how, how do we see, what do we do if it's hard to see what Jesus has done in our life? Um, and what if God's still doing a work in our life? So Joseph didn't have much to talk about while he was sitting in a jail cell. That was while God was doing the work. But enduring that made it so that there was a story to tell Jacob that Jacob would be excited about. Shadow, no bite. Shadow, kennel. Don't bite. I know she likes you. to somebody else all right so i there's a biblical theme that kind of talks about and for me i was really wrestling with this how do you read things in your life that people can see and there's a theme in the bible that of sowing and reaping and it's all over in the bible so joseph is the only place to get life he's carefully planned the whole world is starving joseph has abundance Joseph has reaped what he's sown, which is he's sown this idea of servant leadership throughout his life, and now he's able to serve as a leader. Um, But other people sow things in their life that aren't good, and I'm talking primarily about Christians. If we immerse ourselves in the world, then we're going to reap those things. Um, So those people that plow iniquity or conflicts with people or those kinds of things, they they sow the trouble that they reap, Job 4.8. Or Hosea 8, 7, if you sow the wind, you reap a whirlwind, right? Or you can pursue the emptiness of this world, Ecclesiastes 11. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will, will not reap. If you spend your time on things that don't matter, then you don't reap anything, and then you don't have a story to tell. So throughout the Bible, we're warned to not sow our lives pointlessly, and we're supposed to take our time and invest it in God. 
And God actually cares about what we spend our time on. So Steph and I have been talking a lot about shutting off Netflix. Because <laughs> God cares what we spend our time on. Galatians 6, 8, 8 and 9 says, For he who sows to his flesh will reap will, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows of the Spirit will reap will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while we do good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And that idea of not growing weary while we do good. And I think of Joseph and all those years he spent in a prison not growing weary to the point where when those, when the baker and the cook show up, he's putting as much attention into those two as he has for all his other prisoners. And those two are the ones that are going to change his path at some point, or at least the butler, the baker didn't do so well. Sometimes godly, godly sewing is actually a struggle, and that's a tough concept for us to get. We have a lot of teachers right now that tell us a life in Christ is all happiness and goodness. Sometimes a life in Christ is just struggle. It's going into work every day, doing the stuff we don't like to do, because that person at the cubicle next to us is the one God wants a Christian in their life. Um, and it's where we've been put. On the flip side of sowing and reaping is the happy side. Um, that struggle, Psalms 126 says, "Those who sow in te- those who sow in tears shall reap in joy." Hosea 10:12, "Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, and until He comes and rains righteousness on, on you." So there's, if you're not hearing feeling fruit in your life or things you can tell people about, hear the words of God, listen to what He's doing, like go to talk to other believers and hang out with them once in a while. And then you wait upon the Lord. Another major theme in the Bible is to wait upon the Lord, to do what you're supposed to do and wait for God to bless you. So for Jacob, he's waited in tears now for decades. We all know the verse, the famous Isaiah 41, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They mount up on wings of the eagles. They run and they're not weary and they walk and they're not faint, which is what you don't want to hear when you're tired and wore out. But if you go back a ways in Isaiah in chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah was reading the book of Genesis. Because listen to what he says. I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I'm going to wait on the God that made Jacob wait. That made Jacob wait in hopelessness. Jacob thought Joseph was dead for a very long time. And Isaiah says, I'm going to wait on that God. That's the God I want to spend my time on. Why? Because he's the God. So for all of our heroes in the Bible, all of the happy endings that we see in the Bible, there's a, a story about hope that comes from the validity of hope. There's, a, there's hope in the truth that when the world shows us death, separation, famine, God has a plan in the middle of all these things for Jacob, Joseph, and the, and the brothers. So despite what they see, despite what Isaiah sees, what all of God's people see, we have faith and we have hope that God's plan is the story of our lives. And we don't always see that. And Joseph didn't see that until the ending chapters. In fact, we never necessarily get to see the story, which is why in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, they say, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't get to see what our story is until the end. So here we are at the end of Genesis, and it's all here. Or as my friend uh, Jeff Soald would say, it's all here, man. That's humor for my family. They know Jeff. (laughs) But it's all here. Everything that you want to talk about when it comes to the faith and whatever is buried in these words. 
And then in verse 28, we'll wrap it up this chapter. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, still alive. I'll go see him before I die. And I think that's such a beautiful sentiment from Israel. Notice his name's changed back. And Israel says, it's enough. So just knowing that Jesus is alive should be enough for our souls because of everything that implies. It means we're saved. It means our confessions count. It means that when we confess to God, that's the right person to confess to. Um, And it means that there's that point. So Israel has moved from not believing to believing. And what makes him believe is the words that Joseph said and the things that Joseph did. And that's what he talks about. Genesis 42:36. Jacob had said, all these things are against me. And now in, in chapter 45, he says, it's enough. So he's been hiding for far too long. And it's time for Jacob to make one last journey. Just like Bilbo has to go off on one last journey to the, those other lands. So uh, he needs to make a trip and he needs to go meet uh, Joseph because Joseph's alive. So that's the news. That's the news that should be all that we need. And you think, if, is that really my portion to know that Jesus is alive and that's enough for my life? Can I live on just that if that's all God has for my life? Um, and I think the good news is for most people, God has so much more in store. That's actually just the beginning. And this is part of where we wrap up the book of Genesis as the book of beginnings, that that's the beginning. This is the story. But we still have a few things to deal with. There's a couple epilogues that need to happen in the next few chapters. Epilogue number one, Jacob is, remember, under the commandment to not leave Canaan. So now he's going to leave Canaan to go see Joseph in Egypt. And so far in Genesis, going out of Canaan has been bad. So we're going to have to have a little thing where Jacob reconciles that with God. He will. God's going to actually speak to him one more time. Um And then we have one other problem, and that is the people of God are still only about 70 people, and God's going to turn them into 1.2 million people by the time we see them in the next book. So we have to wrap those things up. So I'm at 45 minutes. I think that's good. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the great conclusion of your story, that Jesus is alive, um, that we get to make a journey and go meet him. And we can talk with him right now, even before we make that journey. We can talk with him and we can hear his stories and we can share what he's doing in our lives with each other. Lord, I pray for the young people in this room where their stories are just getting started. Uh, Lord, it's so easy for Steph and I to look back at our life and see your hand. That's the fruit of old age, uh, that we can see what you've done. Lord, the older we get, the more convinced we are that you're in control of everything in our life. Um, There's just too many coincidences, too many threads that weave together, and you just, that gets so rooted. But Lord, I remember when I was 20, uh, I remembered how much doubt there was, how much curiosity there was. Lord, I knew you were in my life, but I didn't know what you were doing or how you were going to do it or where we should be or where we should land our apartment and what job to take and what job not to take. And Lord, your hand's in all of it. Lord, I pray for peace. I pray for joy. I pray for self-control, love, kindness, gentleness. Lord, foster those things in our life. We don't need to be heroes. We need to be servants. Um, 
we don't need to be first, Lord. We need to be last. And we need to humble ourselves, not only before you, but before the fellow people in our lives, that we can serve and bless them even though they don't always do right by us, Lord, that sometimes there's envy and contention. Uh, Lord, I'm so glad we live in a country that has a little less murder and um, other kinds of sins, Lord, but we still have idol worship all over the place. Um, Lord, help us not to waste our time fruitlessly on small things. Um, Jacob wasted so much of his life feeling sorry for himself. Um, And Lord, I just pray that you bless us and you help us to... um, Wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. That the spirits of this world, Lord, and our spirits are the ones that you're fighting for. So, Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us to grow in your your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.